Warm welcome to the first meeting this term of the Aristotelian Society. And it's a, a very great pleasure to introduce this evening's speaker, Christoph Hurl, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Warwick and is well known for his outstanding work in the philosophy of mind and particularly in areas where the philosophy of mind intersects with the philosophy of time. Uh, it's a special pleasure for me personally to welcome Christoph to give this evening's paper because I taught him briefly when he was a graduate student in Oxford. I wish I could claim credit for what has happened since then, um, but I can't. Um, the format this evening will be the usual format. Christoph will speak for between 45 minutes and an hour. Uh, we'll then have a brief break for tea or coffee and a question and answer session that will take us through to about 7.15pm. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Christoph. Thanks very much, Adrian, and thanks everybody for coming. My title is taken from one of the Lowell lectures by Charles Sanders Peirce, in which he says, sensation is, as it were, the writing on the page of consciousness. And one of the issues I want to look at in my paper is the question as to, to what extent it's right to say that conscious perceptual experience is a matter of sensation. And in that context, it's interesting to see that Peirce's metaphor can actually be unpacked in two rather different ways, depending on how the phrase, the writing, is understood. One way of understanding the phrase is understanding the writing as a gerund. Thus understood, the metaphor roughly says that sensation is simply the continuous process of things registering in consciousness. However, that's to be understood in more detail. The continuous registering in our consciousness of things through the operation of our senses. But there's a more loaded way of understanding the metaphor on which the writing is construed as a noun. Roughly speaking, on that way of construing the metaphor, perceptual experience itself exemplifies a special class of properties. And it's in virtue of its doing so that perceptual experience is a conscious phenomenon. If you unpack the metaphor that way, you will, for instance, speak of such things as sensations, which allow for a plural as a count noun. Nowadays, people don't speak of sensations so much anymore, but many people who have something like this idea about consciousness in mind nowadays speak of things such as qualia or the phenomenal qualities of experience by which they mean a particular class of properties that experience itself exemplifies, and it's in virtue of its doing so that perceptual experience is conscious. And I think something like this control of consciousness has created quite a lot of um, trouble in the last 40 years of the philosophy of mind. And what I want to do this evening is to, as it were, give a talk about the history of the last, a, a strand in the history of the last 40 years or so of the philosophy of mind, 
tracing back one particular line of thought that has led to something like this conception of consciousness. And in particular, what I want to look at is Thomas Nagel's paper, What It Is Like to Be a Bat. And I want to identify in Nagel's paper a particular thought that can be seen to still have influence in the philosophy of mind in promoting this particular way of thinking about what consciousness, what conscious perceptual experience consists in. What I also want to argue, though, that there is some irony in finding that particular line of thought in Nagel's paper, because it completely runs counter to one of the key ideas that's supposed to be animating Nagel's paper, namely the idea of an intimate connection of the idea of a point of view and the idea of consciousness. I'll be looking in particular at three key notions that appear in Nagel's paper. One is the notion of consciousness, one is the notion of a point of view, and one is the notion of the subjective character or subjective features of experience, by which I take it Nagel has in mind something like the conception of consciousness that I described before as certain properties that ex experience exemplifies in virtue of which perceptual experience is conscious. And the notion of a point of view in Nagel's paper can be seen to be the key linking notion that leads from the notion of consciousness to the notion of a subjective character or subjective features of experience. So what I want to look at in particular is the transition that he makes from the notion of a point of view to that idea of subjective features or a subjective character that conscious experience has. Let me go through these three key notions in slightly more detail. The three key claims that Nagel makes. The first one is that the central explanatory challenge for any philosophical theory of the mind is to come up with an account of the mind that takes conscious experience seriously. In that context, we find um, statements such as the following. Consciousness is what makes the mind-body problem really intractable. I think that's the opening sentence of what it is like to be a bat. Or, without consciousness, the mind-body problem would be much less interesting. With consciousness, it's hopeless. Or, it seems hopeless, sorry. So that was consciousness. And then Nagel moves on to claim that getting right what it is for a subject to have conscious experiences is crucially a matter of getting right the sense in which conscious experience involves the sub subject having a point of view. And it's, of course, in that context that Nagel coins this key piece of philosophical terminology when he says, fundamentally, an organism has conscious mental states if and only if there's something it is like to be that organism, something it is like for that organism. <clears throat> As he also puts it, whatever may be the status of facts about what it's like to be a human being, a bat, or a Martian, these appear to be facts that embody a particular point of view. Now from this he moves on to a third claim, namely that explaining the sense in which conscious experiences essentially evolve a point of view 
requires recognizing the existence of an irreducibly subjective character or subjective features of experience. And here's a key quote in which he connects the idea of the point of view with this idea of subjective features or subjective character. If physicalism is to be defended, he says, the phenomenological features must themselves be given a physical account. But when we examine their subjective, subjective character, in, it seems that such a result is impossible. The reason is that every subjective phenomenon is essentially connected with a single point of view. And it seems inevitable that an objective physical theory will abandon that point of view. So how exactly does Nagel get from the idea that consciousness essentially involves the subject having a point of view to this idea of consciousness as being a matter of experience exemplifying a subjective character or subjective features, a particular sort of class of properties? I think it's interesting and important in that context, in the context of that question, to see that Nagel can be seen to be moving from one notion, using one notion of a point of view in what it is like to be a bat, to a different notion of a point of view. Some of what he says certainly suggests that at some points in his writing, what he has in mind is what we could call an individual point of view. So here the idea is simply that insofar as you and I are different individuals, each of us has his or her own conscious point of view, own conscious perspective on the world. Here are just two quotes to um, illustrate why one might think that Nagel uses this understanding of the notion of a point of view in parts of what is it like to be about. Every subjective phenomenon is essentially connected with a single point of view, he says, in a passage that I just quoted before. And obviously, something like the idea of an individual point of view also seems to be behind the use of the demonstrative that organism in the other phrase that I already quoted before. Fundamentalism, an fundamentally, an organism has conscious mental states if and only if there's something it is like to be that organism, something it is like for that organism. So that's the idea of an individual point of view. Arguably, though, the notion of a point of understanding of the notion of a point of view that does the most work in the argument of what is it like to be a bat is a slightly different understanding of the notion of a point of view, what we could call a type point of view. On this understanding, an organism's point of view is also in part a matter of the type of organism it is, because it's endowed with a particular sort of sensory apparatus. That, of course, is the idea behind um, the central example of the paper, where Nagel says that we have trouble understanding the nature of the conscious experience of bats, for instance, because as a different species, they have a different type point of view. So you have the human point of view, for instance, con contrasted with a bat point of view. And that seems to be the main focus of Nagel's argument. 
And we may register here an immediate worry about the way the notion of a point of view is being used in Nagel's paper. Because in effectively moving from the idea of an individual point of view to the idea of a type point of view, is it possible that Nagel may actually get it wrong about where exactly the connection between consciousness on the one hand and the notion of a point of view on the other lies? And that's certainly what I want to suggest today in my paper. In order to see exactly where Nagel may be seen to be going wrong here, though, we have to introduce another distinction, namely between two different ways to, of understanding what it might mean to say to go beyond an individual point of view, what Nagel also describes as the process of objectification. And it's interesting in that context to see that at the point in the paper, what is it like to be a bat, at which Nagel starts focusing on the idea of a type point of view, he also starts introducing a distinction between the general idea of experience as such, on the one hand, and the idea of what he calls specific qualities that experiences exemplifies. It's these specific qualities that are what Nagel otherwise also refers to as the subjective character or subjective features of the relevant experiences. And Nagel's claim is that these specific qualities resist object objectification, sorry. They cannot be understood from outside at least the type point of view of the experiencing subject. So the, the specific qualities of Bat's experiences, for instance, elude our grasp because they fall outside our type point of view. Here we find quotes such as the following. If we try to understand experience from an objective viewpoint that is distinct from that of the subject of experience, then even if we continue to credit its perspectival nature, we will not be able to grasp its most specific qualities unless we can imagine them subjectively. He also says, we know there's something there, we know that there's something there, something perspectival, even if we don't know what it is or even how to think about it. And he illustrates claims like this with an example that's, as it were, the inverse of the central example of what is it like to be a bat, not the example of our difficulty of understanding what bats' experiences are like, but rather he imagines some Martians coming to Earth and they're completely, they have completely different sensory organs from ours, and they are trying to understand the nature of our experiences. And he says, the structure of those Martians' minds might make it impossible for them to succeed in forming a conception of what it's like to be us. But we know that they would be wrong to conclude that there is not anything precise that it's like to be us, that only certain general types of mental states could be ascribed to us. We know they would be wrong to draw such a skeptical conclusion because we know what it's like to be us. 
And we know that while it includes an enormous amount of variation and complexity, and while we do not possess the vocabulary to describe it adequately, its subjective character is highly specific and in some respects describable in terms that can be understood only by creatures like us. So here the, the, the issue is to what extent is it possible to, as Nagel also calls it, objectify um, the nature of a creature's of experience, to understand, in, understand it from out with that, nature's own, uh, that creature's own point of view. And Jonathan Dancy, in a critical notice um, of Nagel's book, The View from Nowhere, um, entitled, entitled um, On Contemplating One's Nagel, um, <laughs> already points out that Nagel can be seen to be operating at different places with two quite different understandings of what it is to objectify the nature of experience. I want to draw the distinction between those two understandings of objectification in a slightly different way from the way Dancy does it. Dancy talks of Hegelian objectification on the one hand and absolute objectification on the other hand. But basically, what I'm going to suggest is heavily inspired by what Dancy says. So on one understanding of objectification, what's involved in objectification, which I will call embedding objectification, we can achieve an objective understanding of an individual's point of view by looking at the particular relations in which that individual stands to certain features of, its, of the world, thanks to the particular sorts of sensory organs it's endowed with. And by explaining particular aspects of that creature's point of view in terms of its standing in those relations to those features of the world. And we can find quotes in Nagel where he seems to have something like that notion of this notion of objectification in mind. He says, for instance, to acquire a more objective understanding of some aspect of life or the world, we step back from our initial view of it and form a new conception which ha has that view and its relation to the world as its object. So this is one understanding of objectification, what's involved in trying to understand the nature of experience objectively. But we can also find a quite different understanding <coughs> of objectification in Nagel, which I will call abstracting objectification. On this view of objectification, objectification necessarily leaves something out. There's something about an individual's point of view that gets lost, necessarily gets lost in moving to a more objective understanding of it that doesn't depend on occupying that view oneself. Again, two quotes from Nagel which seem to illustrate this understanding of, this quite different understanding of objectification. He says, for instance, there is a real world in which we are contained and appearances result from our interaction with the rest of it, rest of that world. We cannot accept those appearances uncritically but must understand what our own constitution contributes to them. So we have to be, um, cannot accept the appearances 
uncritically, we cannot just understand them in terms of the idea of us being related to certain features out there in the world. He also says, however often we may try to step outside ourselves, something has to stay behind the lens. So objectification necessarily leaves an aspect of our experience behind. Let me try to go over those two different ways of understanding objectification again by looking again at Nagel's example of the Martian anthropologists. On the embedding conception of objectification, when we first of all think about what it is to come to a more objective understanding of our, of our own experiences, it's not clear why coming to a, an objective understanding on the embedding conception should leave anything behind, should leave behind an understanding of any particular aspect of our experience. And the same goes when we're trying to understand the nature of um, the experiences of other creatures with whom we share the same type point of view. Having said that, on the embedding conception, there is still a sense in which Martians, uh, Nagel's Martians, only gain an incomplete understanding of the nature of our experiences if they don't have the same sensory organs as us. Why is that? Because the features of the environment that we're ex experientially sensitive to, to are beyond the Martians' ken. They can't perceive those features because they're not equipped to do so. And insofar as they, can, they don't know the features that we are experientially related to, they can only form an incomplete understanding of our point of view. So this was how the Martian story is to be understood in the context of the embedding conception. On the abstracting conception, it's actually the case that objectification necessarily leaves something behind in a far more radical sense. Namely, on that conception, even trying to come to a more objective understanding of our own experiences will necessarily leave behind, mean, leaving behind their specific qualities, as Nagel calls them. Why is that? On the abstracting conception, those specific qualities are, as Nagel calls it, what our experience, what, what our constitution contributes to experience. So the thought that we actually find behind the abstracting conception of objectification, the thought that motivates that conception, is actually that we must always leave specific qualities of experience behind in moving to a more objective point of view. Because insofar as experience has such specific qualities, we don't perceive the world aright. We don't actually perceive the world as it is. 
So the thought that really does the work here in the move to the idea of subjective, a subjective character or subjective features of experience is a denial of common sense realism. It's the thought that because we see the world in a certain way, in which bats, for instance, don't see it, or Martians don't see it, we must be misperceiving it in some respects, because we're psychologically constituted in one way rather than another. It's the idea that we do not perceive the world as it really is, or we do not perceive an aspect of the world as it, as it really is. So what I've tried to identify here is a crucial background assumption that actually does quite a lot of work in Nagel's argument, which is this denial of common sense realism. It's this, I want to suggest, that really lands him with the conception of consciousness in terms of, understood in terms of a subjective character or subjective features that conscious experiences possess, special, a special class of properties in virtue of which experience, perceptual experience, is conscious. And I said at the beginning, though, I think there's also a deep irony in Nagel ending up with this particular conception of consciousness, because it's in fact at odds with his insistence on the importance of the notion of a point of view in understanding consciousness. And I think we can illustrate this irony to some extent by looking at some of the reception history of Nagel's argument, because as I want to suggest, it's the denial of common sense and what follows from it that is really the main legacy of a Nagel's paper in the um, subsequent uh, philosophy of mind, in the subsequent work on consciousness. But in taking that thought to its logical conclusion, philosophers of um, clearly arrived at an understanding of consciousness that is very different from an understanding of consciousness that puts the notion of a point of view first. So here I have a quote from David Chalmers, for instance, which starts with Nagel and ends up with the notion of qualia in terms of which nowadays, uh, in kind of a dominant part of the um, field, uh, in terms of which consciousness un is understood. So Chalmers says, we can say that a being is conscious if there's something it is like to be that being, to use a phrase made famous by Thomas Nagel. Similarly, a mental state is conscious if there's something it's like to be in that mental state. Equivalently, Chalmers says, we can say that a mental state is conscious if it has a qualitative feel, an associated quality of experience. These qualitative fields are also known as phenomenal qualities, or qualia for short. I think this passage actually hides what's, as a matter of fact, a far more complex reception history from tracing from Nagel to the idea of qualia as it's nowadays understood. Certainly Nagel doesn't himself um, use uh, the term qualia. And in particular, I think the notion of qualia can be seen to contrast in a particularly stark way with the idea of um, consciousness as involving a point of view as 
um, Nagel wants to conceive of it, at least in some parts of his paper. So Nagel's denial of common sense realism is really the thing that ha has left the, the main legacy in subsequent work in um, the philosophy of mind and consciousness, in, in particular in the literature involving the notion of qualia. But as I want to argue, what that literature also illustrates is that pursuing the uh, denial of common sense to its natural conclusion, the conception of consciousness as involving essentially a point of view gets replaced by what I want to argue is quite a different sort of conception. And we can find <coughs> that quite different sort of conception of consciousness in place, for instance, in the other paper that perhaps can claim to be a similar, to have a, a similar sort of influence on the literature on consciousness as um, what it is like to be a bat um, has, and that's Frank Jackson's epiphenomenal qualia. And at the center, of course, of that paper is Nagel's famous argument involving, sometimes referred to as the knowledge argument, um, involving Mary, the brain scientist. Take it, most of you will already know the story. Mary, the brain scientist, has acquired exhaustive knowledge about the workings of the visual system whilst being confined in a black and white room. Now she steps outside the room for the first time and sees, say, a red rose. So she's been in that black and white room, has found out an awful lot about um, the workings of the visual system and so on and so forth, but has only ever seen, actually seen the colors black and white. And now she steps outside and sees a red rose. The way Jackson interprets the story, when Mary looks at the rose, she comes to instantiate a particular sort of property, namely a quale, that she's never instantiated before. And as Jackson has it, because that property is a property of a type we can have access to only when we instantiate it ourselves, Mary thereby learns something that no amount of studying brain sciences could have told her, in the black and white room at least. And then from that, Jackson moves on to a conclusion which says that qualia can't be given a physicalist account. I'll leave aside the issue of physicalism. So, um, what I'm interested in is the particular conception of consciousness that is embodied in um, Jackson's argument. And I think what we find is we can contrast the notion of consciousness as something that in essentially involves a point of view with that understanding of consciousness that we find in Jackson on which consciousness essentially involves properties to which only the subject of experience has a particular form of access. So on Jackson's story, the idea of some exclusive access that we have to certain properties of our experiences. That's the central idea on Jackson's account. And that, I want to suggest, is something quite different from saying that consciousness necessarily involves a point of view. It's interesting in that context, for instance, if you, if you Google um, the term Nagel-Jackson argument, 
you will find that, uh, that quite, you get quite a lot of hits. So there is an understanding abroad that Nagel and Jackson essentially offer the same argument. And I think some people argue for that explicitly. But then go back to Epiphenomenal Qualia, and you find that Jackson explicitly um, devotes a section of his paper to, as he puts it, dissociate himself from, um, from Nagel. And in particular, what he wants to dissociate himself from is all this talk about subjectivity, is all the talk that has something to do with, with the idea of a point of view. So I think Nagel, uh, Jackson understands that how he conceives of consciousness is quite different from how one conceives of consciousness when one puts the notion of a point of view um, at center stage. But of course, you may think that actually we're not dealing with quite such a big contrast here when we're talking about a point of view on the one hand and properties that we, of our experience that we have exclusive access to on, on the other hand. So I want to spend a little bit more time to think, uh, on, uh, on thinking about why we should take the notion of a point of view to be something quite different from the notion of exclusive access to properties of our experiences. Well, we've already come across what I call the embedding conception of um, objectification. And I think if you thought that experience embodying a point of view and us having some form of exclusive access to properties of experience came to the same thing, then we, you would be begging the question against that embedding conception of uh, objectification. On the embedding conception, having a point of view in conscious experience does not simply boil down to having exclusive access to the nature, parts of the nature of that experience. Insofar as we have restricted access to the nature of other creatures' experiences, on the embedding conception, that is explained by the relevant notion of a point of view that the conception invokes. So the conception can allow that we have restricted access to other creatures' experiences, but that's not what the notion of having a point of view boils down to on that conception. Rather, the notion of a point of view explains why we have only such restricted access. And on the embedding conception, furthermore, there is actually a sense in which objectification doesn't necessarily entail not having access to um, the real nature of the experience. So on the, the embedding conception, insofar as others share my type point of view, there is a sense in which they can have perfectly well access to the nature of my experience. They can perceive the same things that I can perceive, and they, um, they, they can realize that the state I'm in is a state of being experientially related to those things. It's not clear on the embedding conception how anything is left out about the nature of my experience by that way of that objective way of thinking about the nature of my experience. So to say that we can never have access to the nature of other experiences 
on the embedding conception is not necessarily true. So we can't simply conflate the idea of having an experience and the idea of having access to um, that experience without begging the question against the embedding conception of objectification. Interestingly, what that implies is that insofar as people have wanted to um, frame ideas about consciousness in terms of special qualities that experiences possess, that only the subject of experience has a certain form of access to, they actually have to supply some form of alternative explanation as to why experiences access to their own experiences is, to some extent, exclusive. Indeed, why the access that we have to the very properties that are supposedly meant to make the experience conscious is supposed to be um, exclusive. And of course, there is a sense in which philosophers such as Jackson and Chalmers, for instance, do supply such an alternative explanation, namely by going dualist, by offering, by saying that those properties that make our experiences conscious are not physical properties and therefore only the subject of experience themselves um, can have access to them. Actually, I think there are quite a lot of questions one could ask about the extent to which that actually does offer a genuine explanation of the exclusivity of access here. I think Nagel, for one, is a philosopher who realizes that at this point, by going dualist, we've left behind the concerns that he was really interested in when he talked about a point of view or the subjectivity of mental states. So he puts it in his perhaps metaphysically more loaded terms, the broader issue between person, the, the personal and the impersonal, or subjective and objective, arises also for a dualist theory of mind. The question of how one can include in the objective world a mental substance having subjective properties is as acute as the question how a physical substance can have subjective properties. So whether you talk about a non-physical substance or, or non-physical properties, or physical properties really doesn't have a bearing on whether you have explained the sense in which consciousness involves a point of view. And that's because the way the dualist thinks about experience, the relationship between the subject and the non-physical properties that supposedly constitute experience is thought of simply in terms of ownership. I or my experiences have these additional properties that constitute my having conscious perceptual experiences. But as John Byron has put it, mere ownership does not in general contribute anything to the nature or character of the thing owned. Ownership is not what explains the way the subject's point of view contributes to the very nature of her experiences. So the difference between material and immaterial properties notwithstanding, the dualist picture of the state of your being conscious is a state in which you figure, 
only in the same sense in which you figure in any of your physical states. What we have here is a particular sort of conception of consciousness, the ownership of a particular class of properties, which is really very, very different from the idea of consciousness as involving a point of view. And this has been noticed, for instance, in the following quote by Mike Martin, in which he explicitly contrasts the relevant two conceptions of consciousness. On one conception of consciousness, Mike says, we have to think of experience as simply being a state of the subject, a way of being modified. Experience is to be a modification in the way that being 13 stone is a way of being modified. What marks the former out from the latter is just that this way of being is a way of being conscious. The alternative conception of experience places much more weight on the subject of experience, on the subject of experience, and the subject's viewpoint. On that conception, to have an experience is to have a viewpoint on something, on, uh, have a viewpoint on something. Experiences intrinsically possess some subject matter which is presented to that viewpoint. So first conception, experience is being in a state, uh, being a state of the subject, a way of being modified. Second conception places much more weight on the idea of a point of view inherent in experience. There's a footnote in the same paper in which Mike Martin says, one can see Nagel's famous, Nagel's famous discussion of consciousness and physicalism as principally employing the second conception, the one involving the idea of a point of view. If what I've been saying so far is right, it's perhaps more accurate to say that Nagel may perhaps be, see, uh, be seen to be playing lip service to something like the second conception of consciousness in which the idea of a point of view figures. What he, in fact, arrives at, though, is a version of the first conception of consciousness as simply a way of being modified. And the thought that leads him to adopt the conception of consciousness in terms of subjective qualities or features that experience possesses, in fact, undermines the idea that the notion of a point of view plays a key role in the analysis of the very nature of consciousness. So that was my attempt of drawing out the tension within Nagel's own writing, that on the one hand, he wants to emphasize the um, the idea that consciousness essentially involves the subject having a point of view on the world. On the other hand, what he in fact arrives at, though, is a way of looking at consciousness in terms of this idea of subjective qualities or subjective features that experiences possess that make them conscious, which is deeply at odds with the, with the first idea of consciousness as involving a point of view. What I've also tried to bring out is the key role that the denial of common sense realism plays um, within that move from the notion of a point of view to the idea of consciousness as being a matter of experience exemplifying a particular class of properties. That denial of, a, of common sense realism is perhaps quite hidden in 
what is it like to be a bat? It's not, not particularly foregrounded, but is much more explicit in the larger narrative that um, Nagel maps out in, for instance, his, um, his book, The View from Nowhere. At one point, he tells the following kind of more general story that involves um, a denial of common sense realism, where he says, what's made modern physical science possible is the method of investigating the observable physical world, not with respect to the way it appears to our senses, to the species-specific view of human perceivers. The result is an understanding of objective physical reality almost unrecognizably different from the familiar world of our theoretically unaided experience. But it was a condition of this remarkable advance that the subjective appearances of things be excluded from what was to be explained and described by our physical theories. And what was done with those appearances instead was that they were detached from the physical world and relocated in our minds. So as far as the, the larger narrative of making progress towards more objectivity is concerned, Nagel is quite explicit um, in his denial of common sense realism. One thing you might want to take issue here is the very idea that science could somehow prove our common sense understanding of the world wrong. Peter Godfrey Smith, for instance, at one point writes, if we sever scientific realism from common sense realism, it becomes quite hard to formulate a general claim about how the aim of science is to describe the real world. If we say that nothing about our common sense view of the world is correct, then we lose the sense of what it is that science is trying to give a scientific account of. Namely, it's the very world that we encounter in experience that we want science to give an account of. So we can't leave our common sense understanding of the world behind. But that's, a, of course, a much larger issue which I can't um, get into in any detail. What I've tried to bring out instead today that it's common sense realism too that's required if, I, if we are to give the right place in the notion to the notion of a point of view in our account of conscious experience. Why is that? Because common sense realism is what provides for the conception of experience that's involved in the idea that experiences are amenable to what I've called embedding objectification that experience is fundamentally a relation to certain features of one's surroundings, depending on factors such as one's particular spatiotemporal position and one's sensory endowment. That's the conception, the embedding conception of objectification that makes explicit the essential viewpointedness of experience because it explains how the very nature of each of our experiences depends constitutively on facts, specifically empirical facts, specifically about that subject. So we need common sense realism in order to sustain the embedding conception of 
are objectification. And it's that conception that gives the right place to the notion of a point of view in an account of consciousness, because it explains how the very nature of our experience depends constitutively on particular facts, empirical facts, about us. So to conclude, at one point, Nagel writes, that's again coming right back to um, what is it like to be a bat, it appears unlikely that we will get closer to the real nature of human experience by leaving behind the particularity of our human point of view. What I've tried to suggest is that it's in fact Nagel himself who, in the course of the argument of what is it like to be a bat, leaves behind the particularity of our own point of view. And he does so in two steps, as it were. First, he neglects that the point of view inherent in conscious experience is most fundamentally that of an individual. And instead, he puts the idea of a type perspective or type point of view at the forefront of his considerations. <coughs> and he leaves behind the particularity of our point of view also in a second way by construing the idea of a type perspective in terms of specific qualities that our experiences allegedly possess. And in doing so, he effectively tries to con explain conscious experience, not in terms of a particular human point of view, rather in terms of the idea of a certain class of universal. Thanks very much. <laughs>